Welcome to Real Assets, Real Expertise, a podcast brought to you by Crestbridge. It's the place where we explore the world of real estate. Introducing your host, Stephanie Workman. You're listening to Real Assets, Real Expertise. Today I'm joined by Christoph Kalinorkas from Appleby. I originally met Christoph during our time working together at Ogier around 10 years ago. Christoph is a lawyer by background with over 15 years experience in private practice, so I thought he'd be an excellent guest to talk to us about popular structures our clients use for holding commercial and residential real estate. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So Christoph, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure, Steph. Uh, Thanks very much for having me today. My name is Christoph Kalinorkas and I'm a Jersey advocate and partner in the corporate team at Appleby here in Jersey. I've worked for over 15 years in private practice at major law firms in Jersey and also in the Cayman Islands. Appleby is one of the world's largest providers of legal advice and services and we've got 10 offices. We provide advice all day every day on real estate holding structures. Brilliant. So it'll be great to hear a little bit more about how you do encounter real estate in your sort of day-to-day working life and the team at Appleby. I mean, there are three main areas that we can talk about Mm -hmm. in relation to real estate uh, that come up every day in our working lives. The first one's real estate property finance. So that can include acquisitions or development finance where we act for lenders, borrowers or secure parties. The second area is structuring where we might help to form and administer property holding structures. And the third is funds. So that's where we give advice on the full range of and the full spectrum of real estate funds. Brilliant. So would you like to tell me a little bit more about real estate finance or REF, as I sometimes hear it called? Absolutely. We uh, deal with REF all day, every day, and we deal with clients on a wide range of property finance transactions. And they can range from the millions all the way to the billions. As for industry sectors, we see all sorts really, ranging from car parks to office blocks, warehouses and other commercial real estate. It's a really fascinating sector because one minute we might be helping to buy and sell a warehouse in the north of England and the next minute we could be dealing with a huge skyscraper. You might already know that uh, in terms of the London skyscrapers, Jersey's done quite a few deals, in particular for the walkie-talkie as well as the cheese grater and also the shard. Um, Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what your team do on the real estate structuring side? So at Appleby we work mainly on acquisitions and disposals when it comes to real estate structuring. In our experience investors really are looking at two things when establishing long-term structures. They're looking at stability and they're looking at expertise. They also certainly like our neutral tax regime and proximity to the financial markets of Europe. In terms of structuring, we see all sorts of vehicles, starting from the Jersey company all the way through to limited partnerships and unit trusts like JPUTs. Maybe we can talk about those a little bit later. Fantastic. Um, I note that your team are very heavily involved in real estate funds. Can you give us an overview of what you do for those? Absolutely. Uh, As you know, Jersey has a comprehensive funds regime and we really enjoy getting stuck into ways to aggregate funds, whether that's by way of a joint venture or a parallel or co-investment structure. 
as you can imagine, some investors really are looking to collaborate with other parties or to syndicate their exposure to certain sectors. And we really enjoy helping clients get the very best out of real estate opportunities. Great. So given the um, exposure that Appleby have to real estate on the day to day, are there any trends that you're seeing in the real estate industry at the moment? In terms of trends, COVID-19 really has accelerated change in the real estate industry, in particular in relation to good governance and good corporate governance. That's been a real focus for people at the moment, in particular for ESG. So um, I know your previous podcasts have focused on the E and the S of ESG, and I think we're here really to focus on the G, so the good governance. One main reason intermediaries will come to us here in the Channel Islands is because we are real estate experts. We operate with great intermediaries like yourselves who are also experts. And I think together we really can offer comprehensive advice around governance, not just in theory, but also in practice. In terms of trends for asset classes, as you know, uh, we're seeing a lot of data centers and industrial properties rise in value, and perhaps retail and hospitality might be seeing a decline. Having said that, the pandemic really is bringing out the investors and the appetite of investors looking at opportunities in real estate remains as strong as ever. And I think investors are hungry to find good opportunities. Mm. However, in parallel, banks and secure parties are looking at enforcement scenarios. One investor's scenario where they'd look to exit or they might be in distress is another investor's um, opportunity. And we're also seeing that in the asset space as well. I think that, like you said, um, there's an uptick in inquiries for logistics and PBSA. But then uh, the the retail side really has taken a knock. And um, particularly, you know, you mentioned enforcement scenarios, such a hot topic right now. What's happening in your space in this regard? Absolutely. I mean, we've all seen the news of landlords announcing news about their rent collections And I think they're keen to understand if they might be at serious risk of breaching financial covenants in their debt facilities. Uh, You will have seen in the news that there have been quite a few trends in relation to restructuring of high street operations. But then against that backdrop, we're seeing an increasing number of lenders really looking to conduct reviews of their structures and their security packages. I think they want to really make sure they've got time to remedy any deficiencies well in advance of any enforcement action Mm. being taken. But then, having said that, I think in our experience, we're seeing that a lot of the parties are looking potentially at enforcing over the corporate vehicle at the top of the structure, rather than enforcement over the actual property and taking ownership of the actual real estate. So taking enforcement over the corporate vehicle might be a more viable and attractive option. Mm. So where are secured parties looking at enforcement and potentially exercising as power of sale? What should it be considering? So just getting slightly technical under our local law, it's called the Security Interest Jersey Law 2012. When a secure party is looking at enforcement and potentially exercising its power of sale, it has certain duties to do certain things. And in brief, really, it's worth noting they must take all commercially reasonable steps to obtain a fair market value of the collateral as at the time of sale. I think we all know that valuations these days in the real estate space are actually sometimes quite tough to give and and tough to come across. In other respects, a secured party must also act in a commercially reasonable manner. 
And when looking at enforcement, if it's going to enter into any agreement, it really needs to do so on commercially reasonable terms. And that applies to secure parties who are looking at enforcement, but also looking to appropriate the collateral, being either the shares in a Jersey company or the units in the JPUT. Great. So moving on to a slightly different subject here. When we worked together last, it was on the listing of a REIT. Um, and I know that you have done a lot of listings in your time um, over the years. Could you provide me with an overview of what a REIT is and whether you've been seeing many of them recently? Certainly, Steph, you've got a good memory. Um, <laughs> REITs were introduced in the UK in 2007 as globally recognised tax efficient structures for investment into UK real estate. They've been a really attractive form of investment and, of course, in particular for the exemption on UK tax on income and gains of the REITs qualifying property rental business. In terms of tax residency, you might already know that UK REITs must be tax resident in the UK. However, REITs can be incorporated in other jurisdictions like Jersey. There are certain advantages to using a Jersey company to establish a REIT rather than a UK company. For example, our local law allows for distributions to be made on a cash flow solvency basis. There's also no stamp duty payable on the transfer of shares in a Jersey company, which might be particularly relevant on entry and exit. Um, so you mentioned about the need to involve a recognised stock exchange. Could you tell us a bit more about how this fits into the equation? To become a REIT, a company needs to meet all of the qualifying conditions in the UK Corporation Tax Act, and it needs to give notice to HMRC that it wishes to join the REIT regime. And one of those conditions is a listing. So as you rightly said, the company's ordinary shares must both be listed on a recognised stock exchange and also admitted to trading on that recognised stock exchange. What would you say the key benefits are to listing REITs on uh, the International Stock Exchange? Under UK tax laws, our local stock exchange ties or the International Stock Exchange is what they call a recognised stock exchange by HMRC. Mm -hmm. You might already know, but ties is actually home to around a third of all UK REITs. And the key advantage to that is the exemption from UK corporation tax on the income and capital gains of a REIT's qualifying property business. TIES is particularly popular and it has exempted REITs from the 25% free float requirement. In our experience, that's really great for REITs that have a small number of investors, for example, if the REIT is just owned by one institutional investor and also where there's less of a need for liquidity. TIES listing fees are also competitive and in our experience, as you know, we've done a lot of listings and TIES are responsive. Nowadays, comments on their initial application documents arrive within three business days and any subsequent responses arrive from TIES within two business days of the relevant documents being submitted. I know that um, Appleby have a fantastic relationship with TIES uh, and uh, as do you from working with them for over the years. Um, could you provide a summary of the process for listing uh, REITs on TIES? Absolutely. As you know, we've done lots of listings. I think I've seen hundreds of listings. I'd love to see hundreds more, Steph. <laughs> um, but the first stage in making that application for admission to the official list on TIES is to appoint a listing sponsor. So actually, the listing sponsor needs to get involved right at the outset to make that initial listing application, but also needs to be involved on an ongoing basis. And I personally really enjoy working on successful listings. And Appleby, as you know, is a full listings member. 
There are four steps really in the listing application process. The first one is to make sure we satisfy the listing rules conditions. So as sponsor, we will talk to the advisors and we make sure the documents fulfill all of the ties listing rules disclosure conditions. And then once we're happy with the documents, then we do what we call a, a draft initial application submission to TIES. That can be submitted online. TIES will then look at the documents that we submit online and come back to us within three business days of the initial application with their comments letter. Once we've satisfied all of the exchange's comments, then it's ready for approval and the final application can be submitted online to TIES. It's considered at a meeting of the LMC, so the Listings and Membership Committee. Mm -hmm. And once we're happy to press go on the anticipated date of listing, then the final application can be submitted to the LMC and it can look at the documents and approve that application. That means then that securities are admitted to the official list and the listing goes live. So are there any other themes on listings um, that our listeners should be mindful of? You'll probably appreciate that a stock exchange listing is, of course, a mark of authenticity and itself is a sign of good governance, especially in the green and sustainable investment market. In fact, COVID-19 appears to have fast forwarded the momentum that was already building for companies to adapt to the new ESG reality. And Ties now offers a specific segment for green and sustainable investments, and it's launched a green market segment called Ties Green. Ties Green is open to any investments. It could be bonds or funds or trading companies from any jurisdiction. Having said that, an appropriate third party needs to provide verification, not just initially, but on an ongoing basis to make sure that the investment meets an internationally recognised standards of green finance and can't be accused, for example, of greenwashing. So I'd say that ESG is a really popular trend that we're seeing in the listing space. So how about we move on to Jersey Property Unit Trusts or JPUTs now? We've all heard of JPUTs. I mean, you and I work, first worked together during the infamous JPUT era of the late noughties. But have you seen many um, of them coming in in recent times? Absolutely. JPUTs are a frequently used and really popular vehicle for holding UK real estate. As you say, you know, back in the mid 2000s, everyone was setting them up. And as a result, a lot of prime UK real estate is held and transferred in JPUTs. We've seen them hold all sorts of assets, including London skyscrapers and huge London real estate development projects. As you know, Jersey's played its part in deals for big London skyscrapers like the walkie talkie and the cheese grater. However, recent changes in capital gains tax in the UK has created a level playing field between onshore and offshore structures. And it's really helped renew interest recently in the use of JPUTs when structuring investment into UK real estate, especially given the flexibility that JPUTs offer. I mean, we can maybe go through a couple of the key features and benefits of JPUTs. Yeah, sounds good. So as you will know, a JPUT is a Jersey property unit trust, and it's established under our local trusts law, the Trusts Jersey Law 1984. It's a specific type of trust, and it is primarily used to acquire and hold interests in UK real estate. However, as a trust, it doesn't have separate legal personality, and it's not a separate legal entity. So actually, the legal ownership of the assets of the JPUT is vested in the trustees who hold those assets on the trust for the unit holders of the JPUT. 
So are there any particular clients or investors that enjoy a JPUT structure for UK or European real estate? Absolutely. I'd say that we see a lot of institutional investors looking at that and they can see the clear benefits in using a JPUT. I mean, for example, they are very familiar with them. So JPUTs are well known to investors and their use is, is really familiar to them, to the advisors, to the lenders, to the authorities as well in the UK. I mean, I think that they certainly offer a lot of flexibility in terms of um, the law and some of the factors that you've mentioned. I know that a lot of sovereign wealth investors seem to enjoy a JPUT, particularly um, in the Far East. So just in general, I know our real estate clients at Crestbridge love a JPUT, but for those who are not familiar with them, what would you say the advantages of a JPUT are? I think the main advantage is really the flexibility. So as you may know, the trust law is not prescriptive and actually the regulation of the JPUT can be contained in the terms of the trust instrument. That can be tailored to meet bespoke requirements of investors. In fact, there's no legal restrictions on the JPUT's ability to borrow or to enter into gearing. And so long as the trust instrument permits it, the JPUT can grant security and security can be granted over the units in the JPUT in the same way as you could grant security over shares in a Jersey company. Also, it's worth noting that a JPUT can issue different classes of units. So that can allow certain investors to receive different returns on their units. And by way of analogy, that could be like issuing preference shares in a Jersey company. Finally, investors really are looking at expertise. As you know, Jersey has a world-class professional infrastructure of lawyers and accountancy firms, as well as corporate services providers, of which, of course, we both play a part. It sounds good. I mean... Are you aware of the tax treatment in Jersey and the difference uh, between the Jersey and the UK um, in terms of JPUTs? What are the benefits? So a trustee of a JPUT will not be liable for any income tax or capital gains tax in Jersey. Also, no stamp duty is payable in Jersey or in the UK for transfers of units in the JPUT, provided certain criteria is met. It's also possible to structure a JPUT to be a Baker Trust so that it's transparent for UK income tax purposes. And finally, provided a JPUT is considered to be a collective investment vehicle in the UK, it can elect to be transparent or exempt for direct or indirect capital gains made on the underlying property. So following on from those comments on um, you know, publicly available information on the JFSC and regulation, do JPUTs need to be regulated in Jersey? There's a large degree of flexibility in, re- in the regulation of JPUTs and the level of regulation of a JPUT will really entirely depend on the jurisdiction and the structure. However, if the JPUT's not a fund, so if it does not operate under the principle of risk spreading, so for example, if it only holds a single asset, then the regulation can be light and only the consent of the JFSC to the raising of money and the issuance of units under COBO will be required. However, Where the JPUT is a fund, then there are a variety of regulatory options available, each with differing regulatory oversight. Having said that, the JPUT is really an attractive vehicle for those seeking to invest into real estate. Having said that, they are really flexible and they're a tried and tested method of making such investments. Another vehicle I encounter a lot in my day to day, and I'm sure you do as well, is the Jersey Private Fund or the JPF. We've seen them become quite popular in the last four years or so. What's all that about? 
Yeah, in 2017, the new private fund regime came out and that's set out in the Jersey Private Funds Guide. So we call them JPFs. JPFs are aimed at sophisticated investors and demand so far has been exceptionally strong. I mean, it's a real success story. So just quickly, Steph, I know you know I love a statistic. As far as I can tell, there are just over 350 JPFs at the moment. And I think that's actually 37% higher than the same time last year. Wow. What would you say the eligibility criteria is for a JPF? So the guide sets out the eligibility criteria and the regulatory approach needed, but essentially the fund needs to be offered to 50 or fewer investors. It's very much a quick process. So it's a fast track 48 hour approval process and the JPF can be closed ended or open ended, but subject to the 50 or fewer investor tests. But the main category of eligible investors need to be those who can invest or commit no less than £250,000 or currency equivalent. However, there are certain specified exemptions to that, such as carried interest vehicles or the general partner of a fund. It's also worth noting that direct investment by retail investors is prohibited and all investors must acknowledge in writing the receipt and acceptance of a prescribed investment warning. We presume an application needs to go to the JFSC. What's the process for that? So you're right that an application needs to be submitted to the JFSC, and I can maybe summarise the information required. You'll appreciate that they will want to know who is behind the fund, so they will want to know certain details concerning the JPF. Those details are things like the minimum investment amounts or the investment policy, and also details of the designated service provider. JFSC will also expect to receive confirmations, including that all the investors will be professional and eligible investors, that the number of those investors will not exceed 50, and also that the designated services provider will complete all CDD checks, so client due diligence checks. That happens prior to the launch of the fund, but also they need to maintain compliance with the relevant AML requirements going forwards. And on that point, it's worth noting the designated service providers, they do need to be based in Jersey and appropriately regulated. They are, of course, the ones who are responsible for making reasonable inquiries to ensure that the JPF meets the eligibility criteria as set out in the guide, both on establishing the JPF, but also on an ongoing basis. Well, I found that to be a very helpful overview. Thank you so much, Christoph, for coming in and giving us a whistle-stop tour of real estate holding vehicles. If our listeners would like to know more, please head to Crestbridge.com or get in touch with me directly at stephanie.workman at Crestbridge.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Real Assets, Real Expertise, a podcast from Crestbridge, presented by Stephanie Workman. To find more episodes of our podcast, go to our website, crestbridge.com, or where you usually download your podcasts. For more information on how Crestbridge can provide a range of services to support your real estate structures, visit our website, www.realassetsrealexpertise.com.